What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. It's Oscar week and time for a guest who is a favorite of the show. Welcome back, Kyle Buchanan. Hey, Christina. How are you? You are a journalist at the New York Times and the award season columnist. We're going to talk Oscars and predictions. And you have something really special this year. We're going to talk about your terrific new book. It's called Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road. Now, I love a good, juicy story about the behind-the-scenes of movie making. I mean, the more chaos, the better, right? <laughs> I loved Eleanor Coppola's documentary, Hearts of Darkness, you know, John Gregory Dunn's book, Monster, Peter Biskin's writing, and your book is just up there with the best of them. I could not put it down. Well, thank you. I, I love a lot of those books that you named, too, uh, you know, especially Monster, uh, Julie Salomon's book on the making of the bonfire of the vanities, uh, which oh, is called the devil's so candy good. is also great. Uh, but I find that those often are about, you know, uh, bombs, uh, movies that went wrong. And I, I think I was really excited to be able to True. adapt mm-hmm. that, uh, that vibe to a movie where everything went wrong, but the result was a masterpiece. Director George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road was released in 2015. It's the fourth of the Mad Max franchise um, that started in 1979. And it just, as you said, took decades to make. It was total chaos. You have a quote in the book by director Steven Soderbergh who says, I don't understand how they're not still shooting that film. And I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. Give us a brief summary of some of the craziest obstacles that this masterpiece had ahead of it before it came to be. Well, first of all, the fact that it took nearly two decades to get made, I think, is something that a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, You know, this is a movie that they initially tried to mount in 2003 with Mel Gibson. They'd been working on it for years at that point. Uh, It fell apart at the last minute. They built, you know, 100 vehicles and had to melt them all down. And then over the next several years, there were all sorts of uh, false starts. When they finally did cast the thing with Tom and Charlie's and everybody, there were even more delays. I I was just, uh, I just tweeted a casting photo of Nicholas Holt, who was 19 when he auditioned and 25 when the movie came out. That's how many problems they dealt with just to even get to the shooting phase, where I think some of the more notorious uh, issues raised their head. Tom and Charlize not getting along, you know, this incredible uh, production of doing it for real, all these incredible stunts for real in the desert, uh, and a studio regime that had no confidence in this movie whatsoever and shut it down before they'd filmed the beginning and the ending. So this really was a situation where anything that could go wrong did go wrong, and the headwinds 
were completely against it. And yet somehow George Miller had the confidence all of those years to say, you know what, even though it seems like these are act of God things saying that I shouldn't make this movie, I know that the final result can be so incredible. And, and so I must. And, you know, he kept powering through until the end. And truly, I mean, as, as you'll see if you read the book, there's, there were obstacles even until the very end. Yeah, George Miller is such a fascinating character. I loved uh, reading about him. Tell me a little bit about how he started when he wanted to raise money in, in the 70s for Mad Max. Yeah, I think a lot of directors always knew they wanted to be a director or they're on some sort of path like Quentin Tarantino working in a video store. But George Miller had a very different path to that, which is he started as a doctor. He started as a medical doctor. And when he you know, got bitten by the cinema bug and was making award-winning shorts with his brother and, and this producer, Byron Kennedy, you know, he had a real dilemma of what path do I choose? And in order to finance the very first Mad Max, he kind of used all of his medical expertise because he was doing locust work, basically, you know, showing up at the scenes of these motorcycle and car accidents and bandaging people up to earn extra cash to finance the very first Mad Max movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the story behind the very first Mad Max film, which I get into a little bit in the book, is really interesting because it really definitely mirrors what happens with Fury Road, which is <laughs> a lot of people just simply didn't have confidence in this guy to be able to make this movie, especially on the crew. The crew basically staged a coup against him. And he is a very sort of mild, um, uh, unconventional figure uh, that you wouldn't expect if you're like, who's the guy who made Fury Road? You know, you'd probably think it's some dragonish, fire-breathing Michael Bay figure or James Cameron. And, and George Miller is very grandfatherly and sweet, but he has this spine of steel. He won't give up. And he's been dealing with being underestimated his entire career. Yeah, he does not seem to experience pressure at all. Yeah, he has a very unique kind of character. Um he has an ability to sort of block out everything that isn't his goal and not in any kind of um, uh, outwardly driven way. It just simply, if it's not in the path that gets him to where he's going, it doesn't register for him, you know? And, and so because of that, he has the ability to keep pushing through past failure, past embarrassment until he gets to the goal. Oh, can I have a little bit of that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 it might not be practical for everyday life, but certainly it's just about the only sort of temperament that could have gotten a movie like Fury Road made. And also fascinating stories about what it was like for the cast and crew to live in this world, which also almost seemed to sort of mirror the world itself. Yeah, I mean, a pain for them, but a, a, a great thing for me because the the world of the movie really bled into their real lives. Some of the people really embraced that, like the stuntmen who were basically, you know, had these war boy workshops to get into character and to provide kind of the zealous, crazy spirit to the movie at all times. Um, but, you know, if you're somebody like Zoe Kravitz, who's in the back of the war rig and you're really in the, a real car, going through a real desert surrounded by other real cars of crazy stuntmen who are like swinging into your car and there's nothing around to ground you in real life, then you just eventually do kind of take that on as, as Tom and Charlize did. I mean, 
you know, there were other conflicts between the two of them, but a large part of it was you couldn't help it. You, you were taking on the fear, anxiety, and the sort of reluctant cooperation of the characters and that world because, you know, you were removed from all creature comforts. You couldn't go home to, you know, your own bed at the end of the day um, or, you know, go to uh, get sushi in Malibu. You know, you weren't shooting on a green screen in Culver City. You were out there doing it for real. It was the closest thing to living in the wasteland that they could imagine. You mentioned Charlize, such a great interview with her. She actually had some mixed feelings about this film, right? I think fairly so, you know? I mean, there's nothing she wishes more than that she could just go back in time and tell herself it would be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a very unconventional way that George Miller shot this. I mean, basically mounted it. uh, Because instead of an actual conventional screenplay, he used thousands of storyboards uh, for every single shot. You know, I mean, there's scenes that'll be storyboarded in a conventional movie, but rarely the entire movie in lieu of any sort of conventional document. So the result of that is a lot of the time when they were shooting, George would only need a microsecond of a shot, not a, not a, even a full scene. He would just say, Charlize, put your hand on the steering wheel and turn your head left. And that's not an easy thing for actors. They, they want to get the scene on their feet and, and, kind of give a full arc of a performance, even if it's a short little moment. And these moments were too short to really be able to do that unless you were incredibly clued into the core of your character, which fortunately Charlize was. That said, you know, she didn't know if this was all gonna amount to anything. It didn't feel like anything to her necessarily. You only knew that it would amount to something if you were George and you saw it all in your head. And you knew that you had just filled in a micro piece of it. So it wasn't until the movie actually was finished and and people were seeing it that everybody kind of understood. And Tom Hardy even got to the point where he apologized to George at the Cannes Film Festival for, for never quite seeing and understanding and cooperating with his vision. Another one who underestimated him. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, plenty of people do. I'm, I'm very curious because you know, he's about to shoot a Furiosa prequel. And Fury Road is such a sensation that I wonder if for one of the first times in his career, he'll actually have people's full faith and have the wind at his back. It almost seems counterintuitive to think so, though, because that's so not what a George Miller production ever is like. And hopefully he doesn't need that energy. (laughs) He has to feel yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? (laughs) Some people, some people do. Um, but he's, in, he's entitled to have people's faith in him at this point, I think. And even those who haven't read the book have probably, you know, read, there was a lot of press when it came out. Charlize talked about how difficult she felt it was working with Tom Hardy. Talk a little bit about the conflict, what happened between them. They're very different actors, you know. I mean, they have incredible star power on screen, but they arrive there in different ways. Charlize is very by the book, um, very professional. If you tell her to get there at 8 a.m., she will. If you tell her to cry out of her left eye, she'll do it in every take you ask her to do it for. You know, she knows how to do that, how to turn it on. And at the end of the day, she goes home. Tom's not like that. Tom is more method. Tom will show up when he wants to, sometimes leaving everybody waiting for hours and hours. Um, And when he does get on set, He has a method that he calls sort of failing towards the truth, where 
he will just experiment and do really wacky, crazy things that would not normally end up in the movie because by sort of ruling those things out or, or pushing himself, he can get to the thing that actually will work. And I think those methods were kind of destined to clash. Yes, no that what. sounds very different. Um, and you add to that the pressure of um, this pressure cooker situation where these are the two people whose faces and names would be on the poster. And if this is a huge bomb, you know, right. they would have to pay the brunt of, bear the brunt of that more than anybody else. And they didn't know. They didn't know if they were making, you know, an iconic masterpiece or a huge flop. It's stressful. <laughs> there was conflicts on set. Oh, yeah. I mean, they didn't get along for sure. Um, you know, it all it all came to a head uh, one day where they were both supposed to arrive at 8 a.m. and he didn't. And she was in costume and sat in that war rig for hours and hours, uh, proving a point. And when he got there, there was a very heated war of words that, uh, you know, led to uh, a female producer, Denise Genovi, being dispatched basically for protection and mediation for Charlize. Um, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> it was a tricky situation. Um, he now says, you know, he, he talked about it in a way where he says he wishes he could go back as well because he's more experienced and probably more settled. Um, I don't know. I mean, Charlize also says that there are things about the experience that she regrets, but Charlize is a pro. Charlize mm -hmm. gave a lot of herself to this movie, not always knowing what would happen. And uh, and Tom was not always as willing to give. As a critic, what makes this a masterpiece? I mean, I think I, when I saw it for the first time, I thought, I realized that I had been setting my bar too low when it comes to action movies. Like, you know, I like a good superhero movie or a good studio action movie, but they're rarely better than just good. And sometimes it feels like a miracle if they're just good, uh, given all the cooks and all the money and et cetera, et cetera. So to watch something like Fury Road, where there's just nothing like it, even the other Mad Max movies, and have it be so extreme and crazy and breathtaking in its stunts, in its themes, its ideas, its visuals, I just was like, wow, we never get things like this. I, 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 every single time I've watched it, I feel like I get gripped by it anew. Uh, even now, having read, written a book about it, uh, <laughs> I can just turn it on and completely disappear into that world because it's so compelling and so thought through and so dense and yet fleet at the same time. Uh, there just aren't any other movies that even come close to that formula. Not certainly not action movies. You can just keep going back to it and back to it. it it's really amazing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sometimes I thought, oh, I'll just throw it on while I'm writing and, and soak up the vibes while I'm working. <laughs> and you can't do that. You can't just pay half attention to Fury Road. It completely compels your full attention every time. Speaking of blood, sweat and chaos, this Oscar season, Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> this is seemingly the most unpredictable season I've ever been part of, um, from the best picture frontrunner changing every minute to angry film Twitter to the telecast that won't be airing eight of the most important awards to everything just happening, them trying to appeal to a TikTok crowd. <laughs> yeah. What is happening? You know, every... Oscar season I enter into it being like 
what am I going to write about this year? Is there going to be enough to write about? And then there, there is, unfortunately, <laughs> a surplus. Like, if, there is, if it ever feels like there isn't anything to write about, just wait, because the Oscars will throw pies at their own faces. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, um, above and beyond the, what got nominated or what's the front runners, just, just going to what the show itself is going to be this year, I think we're facing a sort of existential situation of what should the Oscars even be? What do people want it to be? Um, certainly the fans of the show uh, have a different idea than the people who seem to be making the show. And that is an interesting tension. Um, you know, uh, we saw that last year with the total removal of all clips and it was so bone dry earnest. Um, and then this year they're introducing things like the Oscar fan favorite award, uh, which is just going to go to random movies with rabbits Dan armies, not like, you know, anything that really seems to have a coherent relationship necessarily with this past year in film. And they're moving the eight, uh, moving eight craft categories to the beginning of the show, but the pre-show really, and then editing those acceptance speeches into the later broadcast. We've yet to see what form that will take, but I can't imagine it will be a good one. And it also <laughs> removes the suspense of literally eight, like one third of the Oscar categories when so much of the reason that people get together and watch these is to do like a group Oscar pool and shit like that. Well, if you want that going, you better fill out your pool before, you know, an hour before the show even starts because everything will results be will be announced on Twitter, you know, and one third of the ultimate results of the Oscars, if you're an even barely online person, will not be a surprise. It just feels like they don't get it. And I do feel like there's a way to include all those things, but make them entertaining. You know, I just did a uh, an article profiling the sound team of Dune. And they took me out to the beach and showed me all these really unconventional ways that they made the, you know, the sounds of the spice sand by pouring Rice Krispies into the beach. And I think those things can be so interesting and fascinating and, and, and such a great way to make those categories um, uh, interesting for the average viewer, not to mention include really big movies like Dune, Cruella, et cetera, No Time to Die, that they say that they want on the broadcast. So it just, it, it, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this happens over and over where it feels like the people who are actually throwing that show don't understand what we like about it. I've said, I've said it before and I'll say it again. What? Who is the viewer who's like, oh, they're not showing editing? Well, then I'm putting the show on. Exactly. Yeah, and the idea of like, oh, the show is too long. Well, you know what? The Super Bowl lasts a lifetime. Exactly. They've made the length part of the appeal. They've made even things like the countless cuts to commercial breaks part of the reason you tune in because you want to see the commercials. So that's what you do when you have full faith in your product and you're making the entire thing, the entire holistic experience, a fun one. The Oscars don't do that. They're bashful about what they're selling. They just keep trying to cut it down. They haven't figured out yet that they should be playing, you know, exclusive Marvel trailers or shit like that in the commercials to get people who are hyped about movies ready to tune in. It's it, the, every year 
people always people always ask me well why don't they do that and it's like i wish i had a good answer for you they just don't you know in the same way that they don't start looking for a host until the fall when all the a-listers will be booked already it's just madness but it happens all the time don't you know that you're a grown-up I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. We all want to hear predictions now. So I'm thinking I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm going to start with the ones they're not going to show just to get at them. <laughs> um, and the, the eight ones that they're not going to show. I want to start asking you about editing. And the five that are nominated there are Don't Look Up, Dune, King Richard, The Power of the Dog, and Tick, Tick, Boom. This is a very important category. At least that's what you always say. That One of the nominated films in the editing category is always turns out to be the best picture. Now, is this true? Um, Sometimes it is. Uh, Obviously, there's a different relationship to editing this year, where CODA seems to be surging and doesn't have an editing uh, nomination. Um, I don't know. Uh, the, The editing can be so tricky these days. The fact that Sound of Metal won last year, Sound of Metal does not have particularly memorable editing. But I think because he's a drummer, people thought, oh, remember when Whiplash won? You know, like, so you can't always think of just what is on display. You also have to think of what the, you know, a viewer who hasn't maybe watched these movies in a few months is remembering about them. And that's what's tricky because I would like to say that the editing winner will be Dune. I think Dune has really incredible ways of not just weaving a traditional scene, but weaving in these memories or vibes or visions um, in the space of a conventional scene. Um, And also, you know, a really big movie that a lot of people saw. So I would think it would be that, but you just don't know. Um, You don't know if people will think, oh, Tick, Tick, Boom. Well, uh, it's a musical and those are tricky to edit, right? You know, if if it'll be things like that. What are are you expecting? Or tennis. I mean, King Richard. Yeah. The thing about King Richard is if there was like a really crazy climactic tennis match and moments within it, that would help. King Richard does have a climactic tennis match, but the predominant tension of it is that Venus's competitor does not want to play her. So it's a lot of waiting. I think think when you think of that sequence, you think of the waiting, which definitely has its fair share of suspense but like you know her opponent is trying to psych her out it's not like it's not like a tightly edited boxing match let's say but again you have to wonder does the average viewer remember that or do they think oh oh, sports you know right right i'm i'm going for dune today okay 
we'll be seeing it a lot here going forward and um, that's what I'm thinking and what about production design this is difficult there we have Dune Nightmare Alley The Power of the Dog The Tragedy of Macbeth and West Side Story this feels like Dune to me Nightmare Alley has incredibly showy production design to my opinion to its detriment uh, where it's supposed to be this scuzzy, grimy circus, but it looks like it costs $100 million to build the sets. Um, you know, when you see Kate Blanchett's psychiatrist's office for the first time, I literally laughed out loud because it's so <laughs> over the top. She is based, her, her psychiatrist's office is basically the size of an airport hangar. It's so <laughs> gilded and huge and over the top opulent. And listen, I love those things, but I really do think this is a movie that would have benefited with half the budget because it would have required, you know, Guillermo del Toro's most fabulous inclinations to be kept in check and more accurate to the reality of the movie and the characters. Um, so, you know, I mean, great, gorgeous places in Nightmare Alley, but to me, it was a little too opulent. Whereas Dune... I think Dune has really incredible production design. The question is because the last third or so of the movie or last quarter takes place out in the desert. desert. Are they going to think of it as a production design movie or are they going to think, well, sand? And makeup and hairstyling. Here we have another Dune. Um, and Cruella coming to America, The Eyes of Tammy Faye and House of Gucci. This seems to be like a three-way competition from what I'm hearing between Dune, The Eyes of Tammy Faye and House of Gucci. This one is really discouraging to me because House of Gucci has, or I mean, uh, because uh, Tammy Faye has somehow been taking it. like yes, all they've won all season. the precursors. And I found that makeup to be um poor <laughs> i'm choosing my words carefully to not be so mean <laughs> or as about as as mean as i'm willing to go on this podcast but yeah i thought it was utterly unconvincing and the prosthetic work was not good uh not just on jessica chastain but on andrew garfield they basically it, it they just don't look like they're they have real faces um and i'll give that to house of gucci is that is there a reason why Jared Leto should be made up to look like a middle-aged, balding, portly character actor? No, no. <laughs> but he looks like a real person, you know? Um, I just don't know. Uh, with House of Gucci, you know, it didn't get other nominations. Um, people don't love the movie. It's not as though Eyes of Tammy Faye is a good movie, but people are checking it out because Jessica Chastain has momentum. So I don't know. I, I I think it would be humiliating for that to win. Sorry. Don't they often <laughs> like that type of actor transformation, though, here in this, this category? I'm thinking they love it. Gary Oldman. I mean, it's so over the top. It helps if you're transforming an actor who's in the race. Exactly. Um, you know, that's the key thing. Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club, Jessica Chastain this year. That's why I might have to reluctantly go to Eyes of Tammy Faye, but I think the Gucci makeup job is leaps and bounds beyond that. We also have Dune, the Stellan Skarsgård, very impressive. Yeah, it is. And I saw some people wondering why that's not doing better, but Stellan is, um, you know, like the 10th lead of this movie, despite being the antagonist. He doesn't really interact with 
our very large cast of protagonists and the protagonists don't really have any hair and makeup that stands out you know they all have kind of their normal hair and kind of their normal faces and so i just think you know even though sometimes it just takes one character job to you know push you to oscar like when um uh, Grand Budapest Hotel essentially won it for Tilda Swinton and her old age makeup over Guardians of the Galaxy, which to my mind deserved it for really extensive uh, futuristic makeup. Um, I think Dune this year will be essentially the Guardians to right. Tammy Faye. <laughs> Embarrassing. Flop. Flop if they give it to Tammy Faye. Yeah. But one nice thing about that, though, is that Jessica Chastain said that she will forego the red carpet in order to um, be with the uh, makeup and hairstyling um, team when they get their award, since they're doing that ahead of time. Um, hopefully get their award in her case. Yeah, I'll be curious um, if a lot of the stars, you know, usually the biggest stars come in the final hour of the red carpet this year. That hour is when they'll be starting the pre-show. Um, will the stars go in and pay solidarity or, you know, will they still show up uh, on time? I won't be able to find out because I will leave my perch on the red carpet to go inside and watch the show. So I have a suspicion I will miss out on a lot of A-listers that way. The sound, um, Belfast, Dune, No Time to Die. Sound is Dune. That's, that's a no-brainer to me. That's a no-brainer. And visual effects? Dune. Dune. And yeah, score, Dune. I mean, do you differ with me on any of those? No, I don't. I'm I'm absolutely there. And I also think Dune is cinematography. That one is a close one for me. That one is a very close one. Dune has beautiful cinematography. This is also a big black and white year. So, you know, there's really striking black and white cinematography. And also Netflix is really pushing Ari Wagner for Power of the Dog who would be the first woman to win the cinematography Oscar. And she's been at a lot of events. She has a much more elevated profile than any other cinematographer in this race. She has articles written about her. So I don't know. I still haven't completely landed on that one. And you do think Hans Zimmer in original score over Johnny Greenwood for Power of the Dog? Because that's I'm up in the air for me. I do. Um, I think... Um, yeah, Hans, like it, it, you feel it in your solar plexus. It feels like that score is, is literally entering your body. Uh, Johnny Greenwood's score is absolutely good. Um, and he has a really unique method. I think he deserved it for Phantom Thread. Um, I just don't think that, I don't know. Power of the Dog obviously is in a weird spot right now, uh, where it seems to be suddenly losing steam so i i can't see them going to it for that and costume design um everyone's talking about cruella we also have cyrano dune nightmare alley and west side story are you on the cruella train as well i am great costumes in dune everything that rebecca ferguson wears iconic but i cruella is a movie about costumes and i think when you show. when you think of all those movies um if you're thinking of like, what is the big costume from each, then Cruella wins. Cruella's is the garbage uh, dress. That's a breathtaking moment, yes. incredible dress. Even if you don't like that movie, every outfit is on point. Jenny Bevan, costume designer for Mad Max Fury Road. She is incredible and does incredible work. I, I would be s surprised if it weren't that. It is literally a movie about dresses.
Now we have the trio of categories where Flea is nominated in a historic trifecta of nominations. And I'm wondering if you think it's going to have get any of these. In documentary feature, we have Ascension, Attica, Flea, Summer of Soul, Riding with Fire. No, I don't think it's going to win any of the nominations, to be honest with you. Um, uh, there is definite affection for Flea. Um, I've seen that in rooms, you know, like the Oscar nominees luncheon. But I think that it's up against stronger frontrunners in all of these categories. In documentary feature, I will be shocked if it's not Summer of Soul. I think that's an incredibly crowd-pleasing, well-funded movie with a you know well-known director, Questlove, and um, just the kind of vibe that wins in this category. Uh, to me, the only real hurdle for Summer of Soul was just would the documentary branch nominate it? Because sometimes they resent whatever feels like the front runner and don't nominate it. But now that it is nominated and the wider membership can weigh in, it's Summer of Soul. I think so too. An animated feature, Encanto, Flea, Luca, The Mitchells versus The Machines, and Raya, The Last Dragon. I think Encanto, this is Encanto. Right? Yeah, I yeah. think so too. Um, I, Mitchells versus Machines has won a lot of animation awards in the industry, but again, you're talking about a wider awards body and Encanto has only become a bigger and bigger and bigger movie since it came out. So many Academy members, kids or grandkids are watching it. Um, I would be uh, shocked if it didn't win. International feature, there it is again. Flea, Drive My Car, The Hand of God, Lunana, Yak in the Classroom and The Worst Person in the World. This seems like a no-brainer win for Drive My Car. Um, if you are nominated in director and picture uh, and also international film, then you win international film. That's been proven time and time again. You've seen it with, uh, you know, films like uh, Roma or Amore. Um, however, I know that there's a little bit of trepidation from Team Drive My Car that worst person in the world could be the dark horse that pulls it out here because it came on strong in the late going. People love it. It got that screenplay award. I do think Neon should have opened it earlier because Renata, uh, the lead actor, and, and, and the movie itself, I think, could have scored nominations. Um, people love it. I think they might think Drive My Car has it in the bag and vote for it. I just don't know if enough people will do that to get worst person across. Drive My Car is is the safe bet for sure. I'm going for the worst person in the world. Ooh. I'm just seeing the CODA vibe. So I think people are sort of feel goody this year. <laughs> I agree. And listen, I mean, Drive My Car and worst person in the world are not just, uh, well, worst person is not just feel good, but it, it definitely has sequences like that. Um, I don't know. I love worst person. I'm, I'm saying it's, it would be crazy to think that Drive My Car with an incredible search into director and picture is vulnerable, but that's, I'm, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving room. Yeah. Now the screenplay categories, I knew what I was going to do up until a couple of days ago <laughs> when everything didn't turn out the way I did after the right. Writers Guild Awards. So adapted screenplay, we have Coda, Drive My Car, Dune, The Lost Daughter, and The Power of the Dog. thought would be The Power of the Dog, but now I'm thinking it's Coda. I'm thinking it's Coda. The path to yeah. best picture almost always goes through the screenplay category. Um, so if you think Coda will take it, 
then it should take this. And one of the real indicators for me was that CODA won best screenplay at the BAFTAs. The mm-hmm. BAFTAs is exactly the audience that you would think would go for Power of the Dog and not, you know, um, uh, a conventional, emotional American movie like CODA. For them to love it makes me think that Power of the Dog is extreme is, is is weak in this category and it probably doesn't help the power of the dog is opposite lost daughter uh which has you know a, a famous writer in its own regard maggie gyllenhaal uh who's been very present they're both pushed by netflix it feels like uh, if you're if you're into power of the dog you might also be into lost daughter and votes might be split whereas if you're in it for you know, a movie that you just like love and take to your heart unreservedly, then the only one in this category would probably be Coda. Mm-hmm. Personally, I really think The Lost Daughter was an incredibly great adaptation of a difficult little novel, but um, I think it's going to be Coda. They love when actresses write or actors, you know, people like Emma Thompson, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck have won in the past. This is just a very tough category this year. And in original, Belfast, Don't Look Up, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, and The Worst Person in the World. And here I'm thinking Belfast, right? Maybe. Yeah, no. <laughs> this, one is still, this one is still tricky for me. Belfast feels like a completely lost team. Mm-hmm. You know, Belfast was supposed to be the crowd-pleasing alternative to Power of the Dog, and it ceded that position to Coda. So does Belfast still have it? Belfast? had a very weak showing at the BAFTAs, even though the movie is a sensation in the UK, like a huge box office hit, even though those themes are far closer to home over there. um, It should have taken more than just outstanding British film. Like there were a couple places you'd expect that and it didn't. So I don't know. I really don't know. So what is I thought I thought licorice pizza might be an alternative. It was interesting that WGA went with don't look up. Um, And again, there's worst person in the world right there, which people do love. I do not have an answer for you. This will be probably the very last thing I fill out in my predictions article. Okay, this is the most difficult one for you. Yeah. All right, heading into the actors and the home stretch here. The Supporting role actress, Jesse Buckley, Ariana DeBose, Judy Dench, Kristen Dunst, and Anjanou Ellis. This is Ariana DeBose, right? She's won everything up until now. It is hers to lose. If there were any voting body that I think Kirsten Dunst could prevail with, it's Ampass. They know her, have worked with her, have rooted for her, and she's having a moment. They don't know Ariana as well. She's a relative newcomer to the world of film. Um... So I, I do think that there's more dunce power here than it seems. But um, again, Ariana has, like you said, won just about every significant award. She also won a lot of critics awards, which, you know, indicates that there's like populist and snob appeal to that performance. And supporting role, we have her, um, not her husband, but her boyfriend, Jesse Plemons, Troy Kotsur, and Kieran Hines, J.K. Simmons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. And this seems like Troy's. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cody Smith-McPhee was winning a lot of critics' awards, but once the televised group started weighing in, it's been Troy Kotsur all the way. He is the star of award season. He makes a warm and uh, funny acceptance speech every single time, which you absolutely need to do. Nobody has done that better than he's been doing it. 
and he has a personal narrative uh, that Cody Smith McPhee does not have. You could not tell me what Cody Smith McPhee's narrative is. I'm a gangly Australian twink. Vote for me. Yeah. That's not enough. <laughs> Uh, Troy Kotzer has a lot more going on and everyone wants to meet him and uh, yeah, it's in the bag. So actor in leading role, Javier Bardem, Benedict Cumberbatch, Andrew Garfield, Will Smith, and Denzel Washington. And this is Will Smith's to lose, right? This is absolutely Will Smith. Uh, no question in my mind. If there was even a mild question, the fact that he has been dominating the televised award shows, put that to rest. If it, and again, if it weren't for Troy Kotzer, um, you know, who's such a surprise to so many people, then Will Smith would get the award of, you know, making the best acceptance speeches. He's giving you everything you want from those acceptance speeches. And it's also his time. Like the other two times he was nominated, he was in his 30s. The Oscars it, want you to be over 40. It's very rare that a young man mm -hmm. wins best actor. They want you to be seasoned, especially if you're a big movie star. You have to be seasoned. You have to pay your dues. It's exactly the right time, exactly the right role for Will. And here is the category that is an <laughs> all over the place <laughs> actress. I think I've changed my mind five times the past two months. And it's Jessica Chastain, Olivia Coleman for Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz, Nicole Kidman being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. I mean, suddenly the... it's Jessica Chastain. The significant televised award was Jessica Chastain. Um, that been at the Screen Actors Guild. It's not like the Screen Actors Guild is a ratings blockbuster, but if you know that someone won an award in this season, you know that it was Jessica Chastain. She also won the Critics' Choice Awards, but they are a mindless herd of sheep that would have voted for whoever won SAG, I guarantee. They would not have voted for Jessica if it had been the week before uh, SAG. I think they would have voted for Kristen Stewart but they like to go where the Oscar wind is blowing. So maybe the Oscar wind is blowing on Jessica. This field is so wide open without a real strong front runner that I do think anything could happen. Um, at one point I thought it would maybe be Nicole who feels like she should have a second Oscar by now. And she does a transformative real person um, performance just like Jessica. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. It could also potentially be Penelope Cruz. She hasn't won oh, anything this season. However, people are coming to her film late. And like, if they're catching up with Eyes of Tammy Faye and they're catching up with Parallel Mothers, only one is a good movie. And that might count for something. But however, Penelope is not physically transformative in that role. And Oscar voters can be very basic. And they want you to show your work. If you just look like glamorous Penelope Cruz going through problems, sometimes that's not enough for them. Olivia Coleman. I don't know. I think she is so powerful in her silence in that role. I think she came close for winning for The Father. Um, I, I, I would bet she was number two for that because it was such a different role than The Favorite. So I think there's a lot of affection for her. Um, I think the inhibiting factors for her are that... Um, Men, there are men in the academy who just don't vibe with the movie or the choices that character makes and i honestly think the fact that jesse buckley is nominated for playing the younger version of the character reminds you that she only has about half of the acreage of that character uh in a way where if jesse buckley's name was not on the ballot you would just think that everything she does is sort of additive to Nic to olivia um mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know i i truly 
could make a case for every single woman. That will be exciting for me but as if a you viewer had to write it down today, and frustrating like- as a prognosticator. I would just go with Jessica just because she won a televised award. And also, to be fair, there's three women in this field who have won an Oscar and she's not one. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're like, well, okay, then it's your time. So do you think that we're going to have a historic evening with Jane Campion, um, two women in a row, best directors year after last? Yes, I do. Yes. Um, I think Jane Campion had um, uh, a moment where she uh, wounded her own candidacy at the um, Choice Awards with a remark about Venus and Serena Williams where she appeared to be praising them and then said, but you don't have to compete against the men like I do, which was, um, you know, uh, a a very wrongheaded um, thing to say uh, that people have perceived as racist. Uh, And just (laughs) proof that you should only wing this if you're an expert. And just a couple hours earlier, she had done an incredible comeback to Sam Elliott's stupid commentary on the power of the dog. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's ultimately going to be enough to change the fate in Best Director. Um, I don't think there's a strong alternative to jump to. I also think older voters are not cognizant of, you know, social media controversies, though this one has somewhat reached beyond the boundaries of that. I don't think it's happening with enough time and enough force for it to change her trajectory in Best Director. And the other ones there were Steven Spielberg, Russo Hamaguchi, Kenneth Branagh, and Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. That's the the lineup. I think it's going to be her as well. Best Picture. Now, this was suddenly Coda just sailed up after not being almost in the running at all. What happened here? I had sensed... Even from before we started seeing all the major fall contenders, that the Oscars were going to want a crowd pleaser to win this year. It just felt like the right situation. Um, uh, After more artistic films winning Best Picture as of late, but then also after a poorly rated Oscars, um, they want a film that that will win, that like people will check out and be like, oh, I do love this. And I don't know that everyone feels that way for Power of the Dog. Power of the Dog is a more esoteric movie um, that people don't necessarily, (laughs) don't cry at the end about, you know? Whereas Coda has three different endings that are engineered to wring tears from you. Um, So I think that helps. Uh, I guess it just never really happened for Belfast and Coda... Coda became the alternative to Power of the Dog. I, at one point, I thought it wasn't happening for Coda because, you know, it sold last January at Sundance for $25 million, this record sum. But then when it came out on Apple in August, nobody was talking about it. It, it felt like a phantom movie. It felt mm-hmm. like they completely whiffed the release. But, you know, enough awards people saw that it would get nominated for some things along the way. And Apple has a lot of deep pockets, so they kept pushing it. And the result of that is something that can only happen when you have an incredibly rich distributor, (laughs) which is the fact that nobody and that you came out on a streamer. So nobody has uh, figures about how you bombed upon release. Uh, The result of that is that now people are watching the movie like it is a new contender not like a spent contender. And this is something that Netflix sometimes has to deal with, which is the movie comes out on streaming, everyone sees it, and then it's just over. Like, 
that's what happened with Ma Rainey last year. That's right. why Viola and Chadwick did not win. It had peaked too early. The father came on very strong in the late going. Um, and it, I, I think it's what's happening with Power of the Dog now. I mean, not that Power of the Dog hasn't had some good weekends. It won DGA, it won BAFTA for best film, but Coda is peaking at exactly the right time. It is crowd pleasing. People like it. It's movies that have three nominations almost never win best picture. But I think that with the preferential ballot skewing things, that Coda is well positioned to take it. That's what I was going to say, because Power of the Dog has the most nominations of all the movies here, and Coda has three. Um, but that doesn't seem to matter with the preference. Again, it's ballot. an indication of when you peak. And the Power of the Dog peaked around the time of the nominations, and Coda clearly peaked after. The bad part of that is that Coda probably could have gotten more nominations if you know the peak had happened in a different time. But the good part is it means it could win Best Picture. Is that what you're going with? That's what I'm going with right now. All right. This is going to be exciting. Kyle, thank you so much for talking about your book and for your yearly predictions. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much to Cal Buchanan. His book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, is out now. And the Oscars are on ABC this Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. This is Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. See you next time. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.